Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at International Cinema at Brigham Young University. This podcast is for week nine of BYU's fall semester 2021. I'm Mark Olivier, co-director of International Cinema, and I'm joined by Dr. Orquidia Morales, assistant professor of American Studies and Media and Communication Studies at the State University of New York, Old Westbury. Dr. Morales received her PhD in American culture from the University of Michigan. Her work looks at the intersection of Latinx studies and horror studies. She is currently working on a book about La Llorona as a transnational horror icon. Welcome, Orquidia. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, I'm so happy to have you here today. Tell me a little bit more about how you came to do horror research. So I started watching horror movies from when I was four <laughs> or so. <laughs> so I've been watching them all my life. The first movie that scared me was Dr. Giggles. I keep having to admit that and I'm really embarrassed because it's a horrible movie. Well, <laughs> I mean, honestly, a lot of horror movies are horrible movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it scared me when I was little. So um, I highly recommend it. A good That's like, cool. uh, trip to the past. Yeah, I I've also liked horror since I was really young. I could I would watch whatever I could get away with watching and I think it's a great genre to explore a lot of issues because of the fear. It's such a strong emotion that you can learn a lot about society through it. Exactly. Yeah, I know recently there's been a lot of essays and think pieces that are like, oh, horror is political, but horror has always been political, depending on the lens you look at it through. It's true. Yeah. And I think it's a genre that a lot of people don't necessarily take seriously, mm -hmm. the general public as having those deeper meanings. Yeah. But um, talking about La Llorona is going to be a really great way to show that there are a lot of deep meanings embedded in horror. Now, I understand that the legend of La Llorona is something that you grew up hearing as a child. Maybe you could tell me about that. Yeah. So I grew up hearing a version. I grew up in South Texas and Northern Mexico. So the version that I'm, I grew up hearing was about La Llorona drowning in the Rio Grande River. So it was super local, which works, right? Because once it's localized, you have more fear. <laughs> you you yeah. like it's right next door. <laughs> so did you feel... I mean, did this scare you? What, what was the what? What do you think? Sort of the message was for me. The takeaway really was that you weren't supposed to be outside at night. You weren't supposed to be outside by yourself, and you had to follow the rules, right? If your parents told you not to do this, not to do that, and you didn't listen, La Llorona would come get you. So it was almost <laughs> like the boogeyman, too, right? If you if you don't behave, if you don't go to sleep, La Llorona will get you. Wow. Yeah, that can be frightening. Now, maybe for those who aren't familiar with the legend, can you sort of go over the whatever its most generic version is? Sure. Uh, so the general idea is that there's a woman that falls in love with a man, and they're usually different socioeconomic status, maybe even different races, all that sort of stuff. So they fall in love, they have children together, one to two usually, and he decides to leave her. He's going to marry someone from his own social standing, race, whatever the case might be. 
And as a form of revenge, she drowns the children. And then either she commits suicide or she she dies from sorrow or she's killed after she's caught. And the idea is that she haunts that body of water now, like regretting what she's done, looking for her children. And because she doesn't mm. find her children, she steals other children and takes them away with her. So that's that's the the that's the scary part. That's the scary part. <laughs> if you're a child by a body of water, and she's around, she, she'll just take you away to replace her lost children. So, th- so that's the the basic like heart of the story. So it kind of scares you into not wading into dangerous waters, probably in a lot of ways, right? I just wonder if it also has a sort of cautionary impact on not getting into relationships that might have some sort of inequality in their socioeconomic or racial status. Do you think that's part of it? Definitely. So so the idea is don't have premarital sex <laughs> as a woman, right? Because the you're the one that has to carry the baby um, mm. and all that sort of stuff. Also stay within your kind um, yeah. is another message. And in some of the versions if you're a man out by yourself, if you're drunk, you know, you, you should be home with your wife, you know, so if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing as a husband, if you're out drinking, La Llorona will seduce you and then kill you or just seduce oh. you and scare you. So there's also this component where not only is it for children, but it's also for stray men. <laughs> <laughs> Keep them in line. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there are a lot of variations of the legend, right? Tell me some of the changes that you that you've seen in different iterations of the La Llorona legend a lot of them early on connected La Llorona to indigenous motifs mm. one of the omens before the fall of the Aztec was this woman that was walking around at night crying for her children so warning them that something bad was coming mm-hmm. um, uh, so the Aztecs were going to die so a lot of them connect her to that to Siwakwatl is her name Hmm. And then in other versions, she's connected to La Malinche or Malincin, the woman that translated for Cortes and then had a child with with him. So there's that connection that she was one of the like Mexican mothers, right? She gave mm-hmm. birth to, to mestizaje or, or mixed race, Spanish and indigenous. And because of that, she's, she's kind of like this Llorona too, uh, and mother figure. So... It's connected a lot of time to sort of real historical people or events. It is. I remember when the Andrea Yates case happened, mm-hmm. um, some of the headlines and or in the text itself, in the news articles, compared her to La Llorona, modern day Llorona. So in cases where women commit filicide, they still bring in La Llorona as a reference point, right? Like this is mythical, but what if it's real and here it's real? Wow. Yeah. There are so many representations of La Llorona over time. I know that you've looked at how many, 60 or so? Maybe tell us a little bit like where, what's the earliest version in media that you found? The earliest filmic version that I found was the 1932 Llorona movie called La Llorona in Mexico. So this is also considered Mexico's first horror film. So really, really important, really influential because of that. That's the first instance. And then early on too, I think in the 40s and 50s, maybe even in the 30s, I found some advertising with La Llorona in it. 
So if you really? go to a tasting of coffee, La Llorona will be there and give you coffee. I, I wish I could have been there. Um, so but... she's a hospitable barista <laughs> yes. in this case. Yeah, it was, like, it was for like Nescafe or something. It was like uh-huh. a weird tasting thing that with a Llorona tie-in. Are there a lot of commercials or, you know, advertisements that use La Llorona in, in similar ways? Famously, there's the, I believe it's 2002, it's early 2000s, Got Milk commercial. Did she have a milk mustache in, in, in this? <laughs> I don't think she did. But she has, uh, she's eating a concha and then uh-huh. she opens up the fridge and she starts crying when she realizes there's no milk. She's oh crying gosh. over milk. Um, and it was I think it was released in California, and I'm uh-huh. not sure if it was nationwide, but it was created by Latinos. It was in Spanish aimed at Latino audiences. So it was really fascinating kind of marketing to Latinos. Yeah. Just, I, yeah. I well, and it shows, it shows how familiar it is, how iconic an image it is. I'm curious, like, what other films or or media representations have stood out to you that you in in sort of going through all of these many media instances of La Llorona? There's quite a few good ones. I personally am a a fan of Supernatural. I'm always Mm -hmm. cautious with saying that. I like the first few seasons, but then it gets bad. So um, (laughs) it's got a a huge following. I don't think too many people will object, right? That's why I feel bad because if I say anything negative, I'm worried that that's too hardcore. Dangerous territory. I know. Yeah. I had to stop myself from giving commentary on Dune of anything less than glowing <laughs> things, lest I be mobbed by by fans, exactly. right? Yeah. So, um, so Supernatural had yes. uh, what an episode on it, or episode. the first episode of Supernatural was about La Llorona. So the pilot episode was inspired by La Llorona. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they wow. also. I think they. It's in the south where they start off. Uh, south southwest so it it makes sense and it's also yeah how familiar the legend has had become by that point that it was it was still exotic right la llorona but it was also familiar to the audiences Mm -hmm. um so that's one of my favorites and then the song itself so there's a song called la llorona and there's so many iterations of it from chavela vargas to the recent coco movie um, oh yeah there was a version of la llorona that was beautifully done we could write a whole book on just the song and the evolution of the song and where wow. it's been included yeah because even moholland drive has a llorona song so a david lynch I... movie has a version of a llorona song in it wow is that the theater scene no yes. it's not it is wow yeah. i just i'd forgotten about that it really is everywhere isn't it yeah. i can see um why you've chosen to write a book on la llorona because there's so much to talk about with it so initially is la llorona more directly a symbol of like mexican national identity or things how does it how does she turn from being something that is national to something that is transnational? That's a great question. That's something I'm still trying to put together when that bridge happened. Mm. Um, I think a big part of it is there's something familiar about her. So there's 
historically or worldwide, there's a lot of legends that connect women and water. So mm-hmm. sirens, even the banshee, right? It's kind of like uh, marshes and things like that. Yeah. Um, so so there is something about women's connection to water that yeah, is universal. That's, that's really interesting. So so the water, I, I, I find that really interesting because compared to, say, normal types of what we might expect from a haunting trope mm-hmm. is an being anchored to place, right? A haunted house, a specific, you know, I don't know, burial ground, a really specific place. But water seems to transcend that. And it seems to, you know, so how how do you think that water is is important to maybe the uniqueness of La Llorona? I think that, that that's one of the key factors of it that make it so malleable and that mm-hmm. that facilitate how it moves across borders because it can be anywhere where there's water which is everywhere everywhere is close to a waterway or even i know new mexico in the 80s or so had a lot of campaigns about irrigation ditches so they called la llorona the ditch witch and it was wow. to prevent people from going into the irrigation ditches so water is just such an intricate part of our lives that it makes sense that you know she can come from the faucet what running water from the faucet and she's there so she just is malleable in that way and is not tied to one building it's more about this movable object itself right uh-huh mm-hmm. That does seem like something that is sort of a, a feminized thing. I, I, I'm thinking of like the Japanese film Dark Water. Yes. Um, a similar type of issue in the water that's leaking from the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I think in that we'll talk a little bit later about the Bustamante film that that people will be watching at International Cinema this coming week. And also water you know, just sort of makes its way into the household in interesting ways. Exactly. Yeah. Movies like The Ring, Dark Water, because The Ring, we have the well scene and even the horses, yeah. right? So water is just really present when we think about female monsters, because even Carrie has the shower scene as the turning point. Right. right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's so key. And it does seem like it's I mean, it's scary if any water can be. I remember when I saw Jaws as a kid and then I would go swimming and think that there was a shark in the swimming pool <laughs> because, you know, it had, it had implanted this this fear of water. And now I have to confess that I never saw the La Llorona from the Conjuring universe that they did. Yeah. But I remember from the trailer that there was like a swimming pool or something. Yeah, I don't know. Was... how. Have you seen that one? How was water used there? I, I did see that one. I think even in um, in one of the scenes, she was in a puddle. There was a really? reflection of La Llorona, yeah. So it yeah. did make, make it a lot easier. And that one, because it was set in LA, which has a really fascinating history with gentrification and how how people are moved away mm-hmm. from water. You have like the the Chavez Ravine and all these sort of places that are, you know, drained from water to add highways. So mm-hmm. that's another factor that I've noticed in a lot of these movies or in more recent movies, La Llorona appears on roads where there mm-hmm. used to be rivers. Oh, wow. There's so many elements there. I'm kind of interested in you say that sometimes the difference between this this man who impregnated her with the children that she ends up killing is of different socioeconomic status, but he's also sometimes uh, what American, for example, or what are what are some cases? What what is the difference between 
this man who betrays her and and La Llorona. So he can be American. Spanish is usually, he's usually a Spaniard. Spanish. In the earlier versions of the legend. The most recent ones don't have that race component as much um, mm. built into the relationship. And I think that that's more a reflection of how we as society are, are changing, right? Interracial relationships are much more accepted. So we have to find the monstrous or the crime somewhere else. One thing that I find interesting, I know that you've said in your research that La Llorona is not just this monstrous figure to be feared, but she's also venerated in a sense. How does that work? Because I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case with all monsters that, that we think of. What's the aspect of her that is important enough to be a, a positive figure? I think what really draws people into her, especially women, is that a lot of people read her as a victim of her time, right? She had children out of wedlock, and that alone was enough to ostracize her from society, kicked out of her home, right? So she was left with very little options as a single mother. And a lot of people, I think, identify with that aspect of it being a victim of patriarchy, right? So so a lot of women have used her as a way to call out injustices and focused on the, the wailing aspect, right? La, Llorona, mm. La Llorona's wail is this really powerful way to claim space. So I know, for example, in some of the recent protests in Mexico City and other parts of Mexico mm-hmm. about disappeared women, they've used La Llorona song or women dress up like La Llorona, right? And, and just this act of crying for lost children in that way. Yeah. So she becomes like a a center for, it almost feels like a sort of patron saint of victimization that that a lot of people could relate to. Yeah. Like a patron saint of victims of patriarchy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, maybe moving a little bit to the, the La Llorona version that they'll be watching. I don't want to give too many spoilers. I don't know. I mean, in, in a sense, because it's a legend, you come equipped to with certain expectations anyway. And I guess what becomes interesting is how a film plays with those expectations or thwarts them. And, and already, I think having this happen in Guatemala is, is really interesting as a shift I remember I I saw this when it premiered at Sundance and I was blown away. It was one of my favorite films of the festival. The cinematography was absolutely beautiful. Um, I was doing a project about wallpaper and horror at the time. So I was really obsessed with how wallpaper seemed to be also a crumbling and uh, interesting issue, but also the way that it evoked a real genocide where tens of thousands, I believe, of indigenous people of Maya were disappeared, mm-hmm. right? And hundreds of villages that were destroyed. I know that the the figure in the film is fictitious, but that he's also based on a real military officer who's responsible for some of the worst of the genocide. And I think he died before ever really getting justice. Yeah. So what what do you think of this transposition of La Llorona to Guatemala and to its history of violence against indigenous peoples? I I loved it. So aesthetically it's fascinating. 
the story is is simple in, in a, a good way, like in the best way possible, right? Because you have time to to be with the characters and feel them grow and change across the movie. Yeah, I, I think in interviews, the director Jairo Bustamante has said that he wants the dictator that we see in the movie to be a stand-in for other dictators, right? Mm. That we see in Latin America, right? That Guatemala is has an extreme case, but Latin America unfortunately has had a history of dictators that have massacred indigenous communities. And the fact that this legend, that I think filmically it started as a way to acknowledge Mexico's indigenous past, but also push it away, Mm -hmm. right? We have this move towards modernity that pushes away the indigenous and says that's good in the past, right? To use a legend that filmically was born in that to then turn it into a film that, that celebrates, right? And really asks us to look at these injustices and and remember them right so the cry changes the cry is not about moving forward and erasing that past but living in that past in a way that says it happened and we need to acknowledge that right and i know that when he showed it at sundance then they hadn't screened it in guatemala yet and he was a little bit i don't know if apprehensive is the right word but you know just wondered how would this really politically charged thing resonate with the people and honestly don't know how how it impacted them. You know, obviously the the movie has received a lot of critical praise, a lot of acclaim, but I don't know, have you heard anything related to reception of the movie? I I don't know too much about how it's doing in Guatemala. I do know that he seems to be doing really well. He's working on getting more Guatemalans involved in filmmaking. So he feel I I imagine he feels like he's opening a door and helping people walk through. I know there's been a lot of celebration of the actress that plays La Llorona, Maria Mercedes Godoy. Yeah. She's amazing in in that one in Ishkanul that he directed too. Uh-huh. But she's so haunting and beautiful. I I don't even know. I can't get over how well she did in this role. Right. She's somebody that he loves to put in his films and Mm -hmm. yeah, has a really great look. Maybe, you know, without too many spoilers, tell what what her representation is. Like, how does she come across in this film? So Alma is nobody wants to work in the mansion with the general because of the political upheaval and because they think there's like a curse there Mm. uh, because they heard like wailing of La Llorona and Alma comes to help them to be a maid. And she turns into this figure that helps them look into themselves and figure Mm -hmm. out what's really going on and what role they play. In, in the massacring of indigenous communities. Yeah, so it's like a, she's a mirror almost. Do you think that the film is about underscoring the grief or does it, does it offer any sort of healing in any way or is that really too much to ask from it? I think the healing is in... In its existence, I know that like um, the director Bustamante has talked about how difficult it was just to film it in Guatemala. <laughs> so they had to film in some of the embassies and stuff like that because they were worried of, yeah. of the, the repercussions, right? And that one of the reasons he used horror, I think this goes back to your earlier question. Yeah, He used horror because he 
saw it as a genre that people didn't think of in political terms. So he could push the boundaries more within that genre, right? Calling it a horror film facilitated a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. and brought a lot of people in that would otherwise have not watched it. So I think it's like a, that double-edged sword. Um, I, I think it provides some healing while at the same time, it was a huge risk and and there's so much more that needs to be done, but it's it's dangerous. Well, and it brings an awareness that I think a lot of places in the world we don't really have of that genocide. I mean, I think it was even called like a silent silent genocide, or mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe in some senses because it's silencing people through this disappearing. But I I don't think that. I mean, I think his film does something to bring that to more people to make them understand this tragedy. So on a different note, since you've seen so many representations, media representations of La Llorona, do you, is there something you wish somebody would do with this figure that you are a film that you wish they would make or uh, some sort of media representation that isn't there right now that you kind of have thought of ever. I don't know. I sometimes, you know, just invent movies (laughs) in, in my head, but would never actually bother to write the script, but you know, (laughs) wish I could bring these things into being. So I'm just curious. You ever think of like, you know, what would be a cool La Llorona picture? Yeah. I think, okay. Two come to mind. I would like a scary Yorona. Most of them have not been scary. Mm. Um, I'm not sure why. I don't know if it's my own familiarity with the legend or they just haven't pushed it enough. But mm-hmm. I, I wish I was really terrified by her again. Like, uh-huh. I want to I go back to my childhood and be terrified by her. Um, yeah. And then a second version would be like almost like Neil Gaiman's Death from Sandman. Like uh-huh. a really punk goth Yorona, a modern day pop goth Yorona that just goes around solving crimes. I don't know. I want to see like a detective Yorona that helps. Maybe like a series. Yeah. Forget forget Supernatural. Let's have a a Yorona punk goth detective series. That would be awesome. (laughs) I would watch that. So so those are my two very different (laughs) pitches for Yorona movies. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Well, before closing out, I want to mention that you have a horror podcast, which by the way, the art for that <laughs> is amazing. People will have to go to this. I'm, I'm going to want you to you know, talk about what that is a little bit and um, where people can look at it. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. I, I don't know in who, who you got to do that amazing artwork for it, but I, I love it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so most of our artwork is uh my co-host Brenda Salguero, she's amazing with Photoshop. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so Brenda Salguero and I work on. We started in 2018. We have a, po- a podcast called Monstras. It's the feminine version of monsters in Spanish. So instead of monstros, we did monstras. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we talk about Latinx and Latin American folklore, ghost stories, legends, myths, and sometimes true crime. And we do movie reviews. So our first episode of that podcast was La Llorona. Wow. So yeah. people really, where, so where, where can they find it? We're on Spotify, Apple, we have a website. If you go to monstraspodcast.com, you'll find us. We just started a Patreon too. So if people sign up for the Patreon, we were sending out stickers to the first few folks that signed up. So we still have a few left if anybody's interested. 
Okay, so maybe some people will see this uh, movie this week at International Cinema and decide that they want more and <laughs> to learn more, and they can go to your podcast, which this is great. Um, well, that's about all the time we have. So I just want to thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Um, yeah, this I, was really fun. I can't wait to read your book on La Llorona and who knows, maybe we'll show another version at some point, have you back. There's a lot to pick from. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today on From the Booth. This podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the BYU College of Humanities. We are solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as they do not represent any official position adopted by the university or its supporting institutions. We thank our producer, Devin Glenn, our sound engineer, Marina Hegstrom-Pratt, and Johnny Stallings, who composed our podcast soundtrack. Visit ic.byu.edu for upcoming films and showtimes. Until next week, keep seeing great international movies. Thank you.